Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome to Local Zero, your go-to pod for all things local climate action. Long-time listeners will know that we've done a focus on Aberdeen and Glasgow before, but this week we're doing a deep dive into Scotland's capital city, Edinburgh, and exploring its grassroots climate action. Joining us today are Cami Day, a councillor and the leader of Edinburgh City Council, Bridie Ash-Rowan, CEO of the Edinburgh Voluntary Organisations Council, or EVOC for short, which helps support local voluntary organisations. And finally, Matt Lancashire, Director at Zero Matters, a consultancy helping organisations to achieve net zero. Yes, so a plea from us to ask all of our listeners to follow and rate us wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you have the time, a personal recommendation to somebody you think might enjoy it really does go a very long way. So a massive thank you to Ian Souter, who did exactly this on Twitter. Thank you, Ian, and congratulations on your promotion. Indeed, congratulations. Uh, Nice to see another Dundee boy doing well. So, Fraser, a very busy episode today. We're digging deep into the case of Edinburgh. So Edinburgh, Scotland's capital city. Scotland, extremely ambitious about what it wants to do with climate change. So I'm really looking forward to digging into it, but neither of us are actually from Edinburgh. So (laughs) It's an interesting one, and I'll I'll tell you... um, I'm a big fan of Edinburgh for one reason and one reason only, and that is the tram. I love the tram. Yep. Say what you want about how terribly it was developed, about how much it went over budget. I love the tram. Yeah. Well, I, no, I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of Edinburgh. I um, it was a bit of a toss up about you know when I eventually moved to Scotland about whether it was uh, Edinburgh or Glasgow and living in Glasgow, many people say, oh, you've made the right decision. I've got plenty of friends in Edinburgh who'd say I've made the wrong one. Um, but both fantastic cities. And, uh, you know, when I think about Edinburgh, I think, you know, from a net zero perspective, you're dealing with some really, really ancient medieval, um, you know, architecture mm-hmm. and town planning here. I know you've got the old city and the new city, but um, no shortage of challenges in terms of how we bring this city kicking and screaming into the 21st century in terms of uh, low carbon and all things uh, sustainable, really. Yeah, definitely. It's a it's a challenging one. That that housing stock is a really, a really good point. I think the the other side of it, though, is that Edinburgh, and you never you never want to get lost in in stereotypes, and I'm I'm reticent to do that, but it is quite a, generally speaking, in, in our experience at least, quite a forward thinking city, and I I would certainly say that the ambition seems to be there, and I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to to chatting to people who are who are actually doing this in practice just now. But also worth saying that Edinburgh is lovely. We we joke about it all the time, but it is lovely, a really really amazing place. But I think that. It can hide the beauty of it and the excitement of it. Can hide a lot of uh, quite fundamental issues that it that it definitely still has. We, mm. we think about Glasgow as being, you know, there's there's a lot of inequality in Glasgow and a lot of poverty and and um, you know injustice, and that's quite maybe a bit more evident. Um, whereas Edinburgh, I don't think is unique in that it, it still has those issues, and I think these still need to be wrestled with in this conversation. 
quite right. And I think it also, Fraser, before we get stuck in with the guests, it's worth just taking stock about what you and I have actually been doing. Hey, I don't think I've seen you in our, ages. With our, our lives. You've, you've been busy, have you not, with with um, juries and all sorts? Not, not, not the court kind. You're not in trouble or anything. But. No, I, I beat that case and now we're on to... Um, yes. Yeah, so Becky... Um, who, by, who, who couldn't be here today, sadly, couldn't be here for the recording. She is still with us. She's still Local Zero, number one. Um, but she's on, a, she's on a team jolly today, lucky for some. Um, but Becky and I have been running a project with Scottish government looking at the role of local and community energy um, in supporting their national just transition ambitions. Yeah. So how do you get local and, and community energy? So whether that's big stuff like the PFER projects we've been talking about before or more community-led approaches and community-owned approaches, how do you get them into more excluded or disadvantaged or um, marginalised communities? Mm. As part of that, we've been running a citizen's jury. So I'm sure a lot of the listeners will know what we mean by that, but for anyone who doesn't, um, a citizen's jury, similar to a citizen's assembly on a smaller scale, whereby we bring together normal, actual human people, not just energy wonks, to learn about local and community energy, yeah. to talk about the kinds of projects that they would like to see and the, the principles that they would like to see future policy built on to make that as accessible and as effective at delivering uh, value and benefit to, to communities across the country. So at the time of recording this podcast, we have done two of these sessions already. We've got 25 people uh, from, from all around Scotland Blimey. who have been incredible. The level of engagement has been amazing. Uh, we've got another session coming up and then we have our, our deliberations where they basically tell us what we're supposed to tell uh, Scottish government with our own analysis and with our own um, expertise thrown in. Uh, and uh, Well, uh, without any spoilers, and maybe you can't even share the findings, but are, are, there, are you finding kind of common themes regardless of people's kind of backgrounds and uh, you know professions are, are there is there a fair amount of agreement or is or or not people seem generally positive about the idea of energy becoming more local mm. there's an understanding that uh, there's a benefit to doing it that way in terms of uh, tailoring it to local needs to making it work for people in places first and foremost particularly when you get into that conversation around around ownership and benefit and the, the priorities of more local energy systems, there's a lot of excitement about people potentially being able to realise a lot of value in their communities. So whether that's new revenue streams to tackle fuel poverty, uh, whether that's in some cases when you look at the likes of uh, Ripple, uh, potentially you know saving a bit of money on your bills, a lot of ambition around that. But I think what keeps coming through alongside this is that people don't know about it. People don't know that energy is becoming more local. Yeah. People don't know that you can get lots of support to develop your own community energy project. So there's a, a need there for, for promotion and definitely for scaling up of, of support, particularly after the feed-in tariff. Well, I, 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 and you mentioned Ripple. That they're, they're currently on their share offer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Godspeed to them and hopefully they get, get the money down to build their... Um, their solar farm in Devon. But on the other hand, I have been a busy bunny too. We have, before Easter, we were running our community carbon offsetting That's event. Right. So many will be familiar with uh, this fast growing space around nature-based carbon offsetting. That's planting trees, restoring peatland. And we got about between 30 and 40 experts together at the University of Strathclyde to discuss this about what the how these projects and markets should be designed to really support, put, put communities front and centre and to support community wealth building. And we've got a sort of mini-series coming out for Local Zero on this exact subject, which is as hot as they come because... Um, whether it's public, private or third sector, um, communities across uh, rural Scotland as well, are all really grappling with this as a kind of new wave of of um, rural industry, if for want of a better word. We've had, in the past, we've had hydro, we've had oil and gas, we've had onshore wind, and, and now we're into this kind of new phase of, of nature base. So producers and I have been very busy. Uh, so Keep your eyes peeled and make sure you can subscribe to us to get these uh, get these episodes as they come out thick and fast. Yeah. It's a fascinating topic, Matt, and I, I think famously it's just really simple, isn't it? It's really easy to do and to fix. That's that's right, isn't it? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I have to say each each step. I keep I've been kind of on a crash course for about eighteen months now. And it's one of those that the further you go down the rabbit hole, the more complex it becomes. Um, which is always, as a researcher, it's bittersweet because you're like. You're like, oh, you know, <laughs> dear, this isn't becoming any clearer. Uh, how am I going to 
put my arms around this and help the world make sense of it. But on the other hand, it's a bit like mining, you know, for gold or uh, or <laughs> if, if you're higher carbon coal. And you've had, right, this is a real rich seam here. You know, we can go on and on and on. But the, the thing is, I think research is way behind industry and also way behind uh, policymakers too. We've got to catch up and we've got to lead the way and be the torchbearers. So, yeah, please... Please do subscribe and uh, take note. But yeah, the, the, the citizen's jury sounds fascinating, Fraser, and something that came up at my workshop again, it all comes down to community engagement. Mm -hmm. What is the format and foundation for that? So I hope you have some pointers because we sure as heck are going to need them. Yeah, yeah. I, I have I have one, one pointer I'd like to get across. And now I'm a big believer that we don't have to put everything on people to do absolutely that everything that has to happen in the net zero transition. People have a big role to play. Stuff has to change, that's fair. Um, but if we're doing lots of stuff, we want to do big ambitious projects or policies or, or initiatives, uh, you need to figure out a way to bring people along meaningfully within that. And I would say, we hear quite often, ah, people just want experts to get on with it. Just leave them alone. Nobody's got time to worry. You know, I'm, I'm waiting. I've got uh, two bags of shopping in the rain. I thought, I thought we'd had enough of the experts, Fred. Yeah, I, well, I thought that was what I seem to remember. Is that a bit? That was just us, I think. But this is the point, is we, we hear often that, ah, what do people, why do people need to be bothered with this? Leave them alone. I would say never underestimate the enthusiasm that people have for this topic and how much this means to everyone across the board. Mm. The key to to understanding that is, you know, asking people in the first place. If you want to do something to people, with people, or for people, you need to have them involved. Well, and I think this comes back to our topic today in the case of Edinburgh. You know, you've, you've got, like any city across the UK, and indeed globally, we've got a lot of changes to make. Um, and it's the people who are ultimately going to undertake those changes, but also invest in those changes, and, and really um, be the custodians of that change, but also the benefactors. So um, you know, how do we benefactors and beneficiaries, how, how do we um, engage people to do that? Because on the one hand, we've got to go faster than we are, but we've also got to make it fairer. And some would argue that fair bit could actually slow us down, but your point about bringing people along with you, unless they're in it from the ground floor up, um, that, that change may not be lasting. Yeah, this is exactly it. I think this is, this is crucial. If you want to make the change at all, in a sustainable way, in an irreversible way, then you have to do it with with wider buy-in. You have to bring people along with you. Yeah. But I also think there's this sort of false uh, dichotomy or false equivalence that that fairness or justice somehow has to take way more time. It definitely has to take a lot more effort and a lot more thought. Um, but there are there are people, thousands, dozens of thousands of people across the country who do this work, who understand these issues, and who have been pushing for this, working with, with people, places, communities everywhere to try and do this uh, fairly and inclusively, and with all that, all that good stuff front and centre of our thinking. I think what's important now is that we bake that in, as you say, uh, bake that in at the, at the ground floor into the foundation and, and go for it together. I think that's the only way we can get it done. I completely agree. And, and, and talking of engagement and feedback, we have our guests knocking at our uh, virtual door, so we better let them in. Uh, but uh, yeah, so please bring them in. I'm Councillor Camidi, and I'm the leader at the City of Edinburgh Council. And not only here because we're the capital city, here because, as Times Out magazine tells us, it's the best city in the world. So my name is Bridie Ashrowan and I'm the Chief Executive of Edinburgh Voluntary Organisations Council. That's a very old thing, we've been going since the 1850s um, and we work very closely in partnership with in particular Volunteer Edinburgh and Edinburgh Social Enterprise to support the third sector but I, see, I also deliberately call it the community and voluntary sector as well as the social enterprise sector playing with language because people know what a community is and they usually know what a volunteer is so yeah our role is to support that sector in the city and work closely with Cami. Hi there I'm uh, Matt Lancashire I'm director of Zero Matters we're a consultancy that supports business from uh, charities SMEs uh, public sector housing associations and wider construction industry or retail uh, sector achieve net zero. What we do support them to plan, deliver and communicate that journey uh, to their wider stakeholders as well. Absolute pleasure to have all three of you here. Uh, great representation from across 
guess the sort of three plinths of action, uh, private sector, public sector, third sector. Um, so before we kind of get stuck into how Edinburgh is changing and what its plans and hopes are for the future, I just wondered whether we could just have a, a word or two, I think, about how you have each sort of personally and professionally been involved in Edinburgh's net zero transition. What's kind of, you know, day to day, week to week, what's the kind of stuff that's coming across your desks um, and, and keeping you busy? Um, Cammy, I'm going to begin with you as leader of Edinburgh City Council. Um, what are, what are the key kind of issues regarding net zero that are, are keeping uh, keeping you busy at the moment? I suppose to me in terms of our business plan, uh, which is about getting basic services right, about um, ending poverty by 2030 and getting to net zero by 2030. So it's our key kind of three pillars of our business plan for the next five-year period. I suppose me personally, my job as council leader and convener of policy and sustainability committee, that's where our work around uh, climate net zero goes. So it's my job as a lead politician to make sure it's high on our agenda, both in the council, but but across the city as well. It's been my role in the last year in this job to make sure that I have these issues high on the agenda with all our partners, as Bridie says, it's one of our key partners at uh, EVOC in the third sector. Um, but also to make sure that I take that message to the Scottish and UK governments at every opportunity that we can, and we absolutely do that. And so, again, personally, I was very lucky to get one of the places on the UK 100's Climate Leadership Academy last year. Um, actually, one of the very few actual council leaders from across the whole of the UK who got the opportunity to learn from UK 100 and other people across the country about what's going really well and the challenges we've all got. So, you know, maybe my final part is that um, I lead the Edinburgh Partnership Board, which brings together all the agencies from across the city to make sure that they can contribute to the more most effective running of the capital city and Brady obviously represents the third sector there but I think it's important that that body also um, doesn't just reflect on their own their own sector but the way is, is the key public sector bodies in the city come together and the challenges we've got to get to 2030. Excellent, thank you. And, and you referenced 2030, the net zero target, something Glasgow, I think, is also committed to. So uh, we're obviously getting dangerously close to that now. You, you've mentioned that the third sector involvement, Bridie, this is this is your home, this is uh, your involvement through EVOC. What is your sort of day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month looking like um, from the third sector? What, Where is that third sector kind of moving into and trying to push the needle? You also mentioned a bit of history. Yes, by all means, um, yeah. So maybe just say my last job was um, included uh, opening a youth club on a Friday evening in the centre that we were mm-hmm. um, about to build. We opened it in some temporary premises across the road and young people were doing some bike maintenance. And up the road at a um, very fantastic black and minority ethnic organisation called SCORE, they were doing the same on Saturday morning, the kids doing bike maintenance and who didn't have bikes and how to get affordable bikes to young people and that sort of thing. So I think there's all sorts of um, action in the city. There's a big history of action, citizen action in the city. Um, and in this job, uh, I come right to the present day and what Cammy's just referred to, um, Eva holds the vice chair of the Community Planning Partnership. And it relates to something that Matt just said, you know, the construction industry, we've got 2.5 billion worth of infrastructure planned in this region in the next, in the coming years. How can we make sure that we can leverage that into a just transition into communities that we've never really turned the poverty dial on? Um, That's a really interesting challenge and something we're looking at some of the metrics of that and some of the ways we can do that uh, through the lens of the community planning partnership. And, and, and are you seeing an appetite from lo- the local community to to take climate action on? Is this something that's really starting to kind of emerge or, or is it are we are we not necessarily seeing? I would use the word ambition. I would use the word ambition. Mm-hmm. We would actually we see loads of community ambition all across the city, many of which many communities have already are already realising that in some form or other, whether that's out at Portobello or um, over in Westerhales, um, um, community organisations with board, people on local boards who are um, taking on some quite ambitious projects, um, right the way through to some of the outcomes of our climate forum. Um, EVOC's been supported by the City Council and by the uh, UK Shared Prosperity Fund monies to support climate forums since COP26 was in Glasgow. That was happening here. Um, we've got a retrofit collective who have come together as part of that. And so ambition is the word I would use in communities. Okay. And uh, tr- translating that ambition to action obviously requires a lot of support. We'll, we'll, we'll get into all of that. That's a real hobby horse of mine and there's lots to discuss. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Matt, um, so from the kind of consultancy angle, you're, you're there sort of uh, parachuting in, I guess, supporting organisations to make changes. You mentioned a whole range of different um, customers that you work with from different sectors. 
what is your day-to-day, your week-to-week looking like? What are the what are the pains and gains that the, these customers are bringing to you? I think, I think firstly, businesses across Edinburgh want to achieve net zero. That, that you know, I think there's a, a general want to achieve it. I think some of the pains they feel, depending on their size, culture, and, and approach to it, are around lack of expertise and capacity uh, within their organisation to achieve net zero, financial support, the right type of investment uh, to deliver the outcomes they want from net zero as well. I also get a sense as well that more and more businesses are seeing this less as a tick box kind of approach, more as a value-driven approach to their business, i.e. looking at their business models, not trying to overlay net zero onto already what they're doing, but using net zero to adjust their business models, to look at how that changes profitability within their business, changes productivity, increases commercial gain too. And I think that's a shift we're seeing in the rationale, I suppose, or logic for a uh, a business owner to actually take on board uh, net zero, not it. Whereas previously, there's an argument it was more about um, a nice to have, a nice, nice sticker on the window as such, uh, rather than actually that value that's driven out for becoming a net zero business. I think one of the struggles they are finding is, and I think there, are, I think it is different in, in other parts of Scotland. Now. Previously, in a previous role, I was deputy CEO of SCDI, so I've got an understanding of regional economics across across Scotland quite well. I think it is different in different places in Scotland. For example, in Aberdeen in the North East, I saw a recent study that four out of five people understand what just transition is. In comparison to other Scottish and UK cities, that drops to two in five. So actually, there's a bit of a cultural approach that we still need to overcome in Edinburgh to really get people behind that 2030 target, not just from a business angle, but just from a population and societal angle and the type of city that we want to live in in the next 5, 10, 15 years' time. And I suppose my my, my last abiding point is, uh, I've probably got a lot more to say later on, Uh, (laughs) my last point on this is I think there is an awful lot of good work going on at a strategy and policy level by Edinburgh City Council. There's a number of groups set up, as Cammy touched on, to support, I suppose, driving the policy that will enable action to take place and investments to flood into the city around net zero and sustainability too. I do think, though, there is a chasm between what's happening at that strategic level and what's practically happening at a citizen and business level level two. And I think that's the area we need to really focus on if we're going to shift the dial on 2030. I think that's a, that's an interesting point, Matt, and we'll, we'll definitely pick up the, the sort of public understanding of just transition. That's been a, another hobby horse on this podcast. Um, it's something that comes up a lot. But I guess on your last point, that marrying together the strategic vision and the ambition that Bridey highlighted um, with with action and progress, Cami, I'm wondering if you can talk to. We talked about the sort of the future vision for Edinburgh, um, but what what progress is happening sort of day to day? Where are where are we at with that, and and how, I guess, how confident are you on the sort of trajectory towards that that bigger vision? So uh, I think as Matt touched on earlier, you know, we're at 2023, seven years to go to get to net zero is a huge challenge, and none of us want to get to 2030 and say let's offset this by planting 10 billion trees around the city, which some corporates have already done. Um, I suppose, what are we doing so far? I mean, as Brady touched on, we're working with the sector across across Edinburgh to try and make this a goal um, for the whole city, never mind just for the city council. I think for me, the biggest area, I was talking about this earlier with one of my colleagues, you know, how do we make uh, the transition to net zero for everybody? Now, if you're, if you're, I'll use some fairly blunt language. If you're middle class and you can afford to buy a Tesla and retrofit your house, then we're all fine. But if you're a one-parent family in Pilton who's struggling to pay the rent and feed their kids, how do we make sure that... And and, and I'm in no way saying that people who are poorer don't relish the challenges of net zero, but we need to be realistic about that. Have you got 10 grand at least to retrofit your home 
um, because the, the authorities haven't got the money to meet the current targets that are being demanded to achieve it. How, I suppose for me, how do we make it relevant to everybody in the city to make sure that you can do something? It may not be about retrofitting your home or buying a fancy car, but what small steps can you take to travel locally to not need to use a car to join the city car club? And I say this, Fraser, because I'm in that exact position. Now, I've got a little mini that I seldom use now, and I'm thinking about, can I change my routines to join the City Car Club, use the bus that I've got, the best bus service in the country, um, publicly owned bus service. But how do you make that shift from what's been our norm for for me, my work of the last two decades, travelling about in and out of the city by car, to be changing that, that, that transport use? So we are, we're massively doing work at Edinburgh. So we've just opened, or just about to open, the next substantial link to the tram line into New Haven, which will go through the most densely populated part, or one of the most densely populated parts of Scotland, being down Leithwalk into New Haven, where we've seen a boom and uh, our properties being built there. So a £200 million tram and we'll go down through the heart of that that part of the city and encourage people to use the tram as their way of getting around getting around the uh, the city is part of that we we're embarking on um installing electric vehicle charging points but that's a chicken and egg for us as well because we're not going to invest money and take up people's parking spaces for charging points that are not getting used because people can't afford to buy electric cars that are too expensive so you know it's, it's, there's a catch 22 for us in what we're doing doing there. Um, I suppose just a couple of the things that we're doing, but I think importantly, and probably the things that, um, that Brian would talk on, to make sure that no one feels stigmatised through this process as well, that you must do this. You know, For me, if we can encourage people across the city to, to make these tiny steps to get to 2030, all of these tiny steps will come together to make that big leap that we need to get to 2030. But I suppose maybe the most important thing is we'll never get there without a real change in government policy. The cost to upgrade council buildings alone is in excess of £4 billion, pounds, four times our annual budget. Um, and that doesn't include the 20,000 council homes we, that we own. And we've not seen any change in the government's policy in terms of we've had policy change that's unfair we have had policy change from government but no change at all in the amount of money that's brought forward to fund any of these initiatives so 50 odd million pounds is putting in 21 22 no change to that is at a time when all the costs are going up and up and up so to bid into that pot of money we'll Edinburgh alone will spend that 50 million pounds no problem um so we need not just warm words from our governments. And I say that the Scottish government and UK governments, if you want public bodies and, and, and homeowners to change the way they heat their homes, travel around, then that needs real investment. And, and I think if I was being blunt and it's been, uh, and I can quote them uh, by government ministers and conveners from the Scottish and UK government saying that without government policy change and the money that comes with it, we will never get to net zero. I think that's an entirely fair point. I think that the the scale of it and, and something that we we see, Matt, certainly when we have these conversations, is the there's there's no as Bridie mentioned in communities, but at local authorities, different organisations, there's no short of shortage of ambition to to get this stuff done. But it has to come with a, a big transformation. Bridie, something that Cami talked about there was making sure that this isn't just a, a middle class thing that benefits predominantly middle class homeowners. And when we when we do this work out in communities, invariably. Uh, the third sector, community and voluntary sector, are there right on the right on the front of it, making sure that people are involved in the conversation, that they're they're uh, engaged within processes, etc. What are some of the the key challenges you face with doing that, and what are some of the the exciting work that you see going on around around those kinds of communities in the city? It's multifaceted in some ways, and I suppose one of the things we're trying to do is bring in examples of that whether it's in the city and people to be, be exposed to that across the city with each other in terms of where that ambition's been realized um as well as across scotland you know if you look up to the west coast we've got community development trusts that are managing land and energy uh, facilities from wind farms to um uh, other facilities that are actually generating energy with confidence and building community-owned homes these sorts of things and that's been done by community-owned development trusts 
So I think it will need some mechanisms to support that community ambition. Um, and that's something we really want to see the development of in the, in the city, more, more, more of those. But there are fantastic examples already. And uh, just to say what the Development Trust is, is a local place-based charity which can bring funds and in, in, in from different sources it will tend to have a variety of activities uh, the key thing is that local people are on the board um, and it's a mechanism by which you can manage things that are actually are about creating uh, infrastructure and responding to some of the things that need to be that need to be created at pace if we're going to really get to um, net zero and also if we're going to create a just transition um, and there's a, there's less of those in urban environments in general in Scotland, and we've got less a bit a bit less again in Edinburgh. So how could we really grow those? Um, in my in my last role um, at Space and Broomhouse Hub, we did a three point two million pound build. Um, we have really good environmental standards within that, uh, and at the end we put in some electric bikes for local staff to be able to use, um, as well as encouraging public transport. Um, but there are parts of the city you can't get to to reach a needy family unless you need some sort of individualised transport. So, how can we actually help multiply up that sort of effort across the across the city? We've got bits of the city with very low infrastructure in terms of the community sector, so you might have um, aspiration of a local group to actually get towards the. But that's exactly what Evox there to do is actually to help people create good. Um, um, good organisations with good governance, good financial management, you know, invest in your people and be able to tell the story of, of, of what you're doing. Um, and so I think that investment in community aspiration and community ambition is actually, um, there is a level of that and, and the climate forums uncovered that. But actually, I think we need it at pace, um, particularly from government and from um, and from a UK government level, because as well, it's about new money, but it's also about existing money. You know, we have to remember this that with this this planned infrastructure investment across across many public partners from uh, the universities through to the NHS. Um, any building that goes in often needs quite practical skills. Um, you know, coming back to Matt's point earlier about SMEs and and businesses, some of those are actually they're not rocket science skills about getting us to the moon. They're plumbing and electrician skills that can be tweaked. So actually, it's the ability in some of our areas of deprivation for those schools to know about those opportunities for young people to join their local to be employed by their local SMEs um, and for contracts to go to SMEs and to social enterprises um, within the, the city, start also with subcontracts for some of these big pieces of investment um, that actually then lead to local jobs. Um, a just transition can be a good local job in an SME or in a community organisation or in a social enterprise. Um, it, it, it isn't just the community benefit of a small bit of an investment in a garden or something like that. We can do more ambitious things than that again. Um, I'm also really interested where possible to get early conversations as there's actually investment going in, because these are really interesting, rather than just the architect's vision of whatever's going to be created. We had an example of this, by the way, where the architect and the commissioners for a piece of work, piece of work came along to speak to some of the community in Liberton and some of the local organisations. Architect, really passionate about Passive House. It was already going on in the community. There were volunteers being trained in Passive House in the community. So how can we front load some of these really interesting conversations with communities, with community councillors, with community organisations and with young people and with schools and yeah. actually unlock that ambition? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a broader question. And I'm going to come to Matt in a moment. I've got a question for you. But uh, just there's a, just a note, there's a broader question here about where you kind of develop these capacities and capabilities, which we have to acknowledge are different. Capabilities are kind of, you know, what you can do and the capacity is is, is the ability, not the ability, the, the time and space, the resource to, to be able to flex those capabilities. Um, but for me, there's something that's coming out here around what do we, you know, which sector do we expect to take responsibility for doing the stuff, but then also which sector do we expect to take responsibility for cultivating that ability to do stuff? And so I can imagine there's a world there where the private sector or council or public sector put in place the foundations to enable communities to get on and do this stuff. And that means that they don't then have to do it. So maybe we'll come back come back to that point. But Matt, I just had a question there, maybe with your kind of business cap on, sort of exploring this point about progress in Edinburgh and, and, and the city region there. Where are you kind of surprised uh, where, you know, the level of progress that's being made in businesses? And where are, you, where are there examples of where maybe you're frustrated that more progress isn't being made? Are, are there any surprises there? I, th I think there is progress, and um, I'll come back and answer that question at the end, but uh, it was touching on some of Cammy and Riley's points here. I think, so, if you've got a, a business wanting to locate in Edinburgh, they've come in and said, listen, we're going to make, uh, have a Scotland, Scottish office, a UK office, and it's going to be our 
European HQ or a relatively large business or whatever it might be, or even if you've got a smaller business setting up, the question surely has to be what are they bringing to the city from a sustainability factor and perspective and how does that generation of investment actually help create jobs that are green jobs, that are sustainable, that have the knock-on effect of supporting those wider communities that that Bridie's highlighted um, themselves. So if, if you look at investment, if you're going to go off, off and build, I don't know, £25 million building in, in Edinburgh right now, well, let's look around that building. What exists? How's that? Let, let's kind of do a systems reefing rather than just plug it into the mains and go, right, there's your gas, there's your electricity. Crack on, you hooked up to Scottish gas, great, great, brilliant, fantastic, job done. That's easy. Actually, how do you, you know, if it's located half a kilometre from a big hospital, why isn't there a local heat district network? Why isn't there something that is taking these things out with the the main type of body of thinking around energy or around energy efficiency, whatever it might, might be as well? And I think that's the challenge, because when we ask these companies to come in, or there's a big new housing development. We always say, oh, can you put a bus route in? Can you make sure there's a minibus to get people? The <laughs> well, actually, actually, no, can you go and heat the, heat the rest of the town for us? I think that you raise a really interesting point there about what the priorities are for business. You, you may have just been sort of highlighting a kind of uh, illustrative case, but you kind of fl- um, presented transport as a priority for some of these organisations. And actually, on the other hand, heating isn't necessarily. And I guess if I'm a business... For me, one of the most conspicuous things that I would do in terms of my carbon footprint would be how my employees travel to and from work. But also how they travel to and from work really matters to my employees because, you know, their commute really makes a difference to them in terms of the cost. Cammy, you're talking about whether you need a car or not. I mean, that's that's a you know a millstone around your neck each year in terms of MOT insurance. Are you finding, Matt, that your businesses are possibly kind of cherry picking um, carbon issues because they align with other issues you know that they're, they're looking to sort of they're, they're tangling with firstly Matt, i want a few clients left at the end of this podcast so <laughs> they're, all obviously, they're all obviously doing the best things ever right uh, no, to, 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 to be fair there are businesses none that i work with uh, <laughs> that are doing the right things and they're, they're they're going right through scope one scope two scope three looking as far as they can get the data to make the changes that they can they're seeing this not as a tick box kind of exercise that they can advertise they've done something on active travel, which don't get me wrong, is important culturally to a business and the way they're heading, but actually looking more fundamentally about where the supply chain is, where it's located, looking at um, more local supply chains, looking at using a more circular approach to their business and such so as well. So the ones who get it see the value. I don't think every business gets it yet. The ones that have got it really don't know what to do with it <laughs> and the ones that have started on their own doing it go we really don't have the expertise or skills to deliver it so you, you're talking at different points of a business's journey i suppose and depending on the size and nature of it we, we we've had one business lately that remain nameless that that a great business fantastic business there's a lot of good work creates a lot of jobs in scotland and edinburgh and, and beyond however they were pretty, pretty ambivalent about their net zero strategy. What it re, re, retested, what did it re-strengthened and actually meaningful to actually gain their, the opportunity of reaching to uh, net zero by 2040. And that's the key bit. People are starting to realise that just saying things or branding something or doing a bit of PR or something is not enough. They need to go deeper mm. and faster and quicker. Yeah. I'd like to pick it up on that, that point, Matt, on... Um supply chains, and I guess the broader point around capturing local value. Kami, uh, what, what do you see as, I guess, the, the council's role? And not just in, I, I appreciate we'll all share that ambition, but in terms of practically, how can you help to, to capture that value, whether that's the jobs, whether that's stimulating the local supply chains? How do you make that happen in practice? So we've got probably a live example now of how we are shifting, and I totally get what Matt says. I don't think any particularly public bodies have caught up with this as well we don't have the expertise as well we rely on the private sector to bring this expertise in and so we're kind of caught with trusting and relying on that sector to come forward with the best technology we have a development in granton just found the new station the old station's building sorry that will be our first 70 odd 
uh, net zero house had been built with a district heating system. One of the first times we've built a district heating system, maybe unfair to say ever, but in a long time in the city. And, and I think that's going to include uh, air source heat pumps. Now, I say that, not knowing enough about all that, but people who I talk to are already saying, yeah, but that's not the best system to be using for that. So, um, and, and again, so that's starting to bring that industry into the city to say, we need your expertise and your workforce to, to bring in the air source heat pumps. We are now just having the discussion uh, yesterday about bringing in a heat network through the sewage pipes along uh, the waterfront into the sea to heat thousands of homes. And of course, we've had the discussion about where else can we plug that into? And I don't think we're ambitious enough yet because it will plug into, to be fair, the local high school, two primary schools and the network of homes across here. The college is next door. Edinburgh College is next door to where this will be. We've not talked to them. Uh, Leonardo, the biggest collection of engineers in Scotland at Crutoll, thousands of staff, we've not talked to them either. So I think we're taking small steps to try and do that, probably because we're nervous that we don't know enough about it and relying on the industry. And when, when the industry come in, I recently met with Vattenfall about the work they're doing in Midlothian, about how we can have these energy plants in Edinburgh. And I think, I think as we did... If I jump back a wee bit, we bought the land in it granting from National Grid um, at a time when the economy was at its lowest and with ambition to take control of that land and make it a huge development. And I think it will be partly upon local authorities like us to, see, to push that boat and say, we do want to try these different uh, heat networks and we might get it wrong sometimes. We'll have to work, of course, with the private sector and learn, make mistakes sometimes. And I think then, then the trades will follow that. I think if I was to be up front now, it's, I think one of the problems we have is will be the recruitment of the people to deliver this area work. So I, I have been approached by one organisation, Battenfall. Um, I don't know who else can deliver this kind of work. Probably Matt, Matt maybe knows that kind of work. But um, I think it is incumbent on us, Fraser, to, to push the boat and say, we will lead by example. We want to have our, particularly our social housing in Edinburgh, have the best and lowest heat costs possible um, that will come at a fairly big expense to the local authority and um, but we should be bold enough to do that because we know that by reducing the heat uh, or changing the heat uh, the way we heat people's homes puts money in their pockets and you talk you know for us it's important to deal with not only um climate but with poverty uh, it's part of my link about people needing to be involved in it wherever you are on that that spectrum so that does need the local authorities like us to take a leading role as we did buying up in private land to take control of it and build affordable housing and cultural experiences the next part of that is about how do we make sure and i i like the matt's point about because we do get that, will you make sure there's a public bus going through the, this new community we're building? Yeah. But what we're now seeing is, but as well as the bus, we need a different heating system. Yeah. And, and Cammy, you started to move into, uh, I guess, one of my favourite territories with this pod is starting to kind of pick apart some of the, the unique or rare place-based characteristics of these places that we talk about, right? So... Yeah, Bridie, I'm, I'm, you're speaking to all of these different organisations. From your perspective, what are the kind of some of the unique or rare challenges, but also the opportunities that present themselves in Edinburgh? There is no city like it. There might be similar cities, but I probably haven't visited many of them. What, what makes what makes it particularly easy or difficult to do climate action from from the from you know from the bottom up in, in, in Edinburgh? Um, I think there's a, a few different key things that make it a challenge. Um, so, for example, the fact that we still have some of the highest poverty in Scotland is not visible. It's, you know, Edinburgh's a very beautiful city. And when you first come, um, that's not necessarily what you see. But there are parts of the city in terms of our uh, the actual statistics that we've got some very deep poverty. Um, and therefore, you know, communities that are um, feeling disconnected or where there is you know, multi-generational trauma, and we need to be making sure they've got the right support for for uh, for those sorts of things. Ironically, though, within those communities, are often the greatest act is often the greatest activism as well. Um, so actually, it's actually matching the ambition of some of the activism within that to actually take things forward. And um, who are delighted to be part of conversations when we actually have a chance at EVOC to go out and, and support those conversations uh, to happen. Because our role is often a convening role. 
it's we we are not the general organizing director of everything it's actually to support inspiration and relationship and um uh, connecting that with ambition so one of the challenges is we've got deep poverty in the city and there's a lot of historical issues about that we've also got a, a policy context that actually mitigates against it as well with policies that, that actually create poverty and ongoing deepening poverty because that's going up for the child poverty are actually decisions that could be changed at a UK-wide level um, to invest in housing, to invest in people and and to actually turn inequalities around. We've, we've got bits of the city where you go down the road and you lose 20 years in your average lifespan. We could be investing better at a UK-wide level. And the Poverty Commission, which was uh, led, you know, EVOC was part of the voices that created the momentum for that, uh, the effort has gone in at the council to actually do that. Cammy's deeply, been deeply involved in that, the outcomes of that now, where to say to UK and Scottish governments, we can change the poverty dial. So I think it is quite, there are some really big challenges um, to actually then do net zero at the same time. But actually, let's make sure to connect those two very things. The last point for me is we're a really fast-growing city. It's a place where people want to live and prices are going up fast. So how can you combine things like, um, you know, community owned solar co-ops, community owned housing that's actually creating those things. So we've got we've got the ambitions that Cami described, but equally, let's make sure we're investing in community ambitions because of both added together. You've actually got some real um, alchemy. And before we move on to our, our final question to, to Matt and Cami, same kind of question, really. What are the, the, the somewhat that might not be entirely unique, but somewhat unique opportunities or challenges that Edinburgh faces. Matt, maybe we'll begin with you and Cammy if you want to have a have a final word on, and then over to Fraser. As Cammy started, I, I, Edinburgh is a world-class city. Let, let's not forget that. Globally, it is a renowned, historical, world-class city. A strong regulatory system. We've got a vibrant finance, legal, tourism sector. We've got innovation coming out of our bones with Three universities, Harry Watt, Edinburgh University and Napier. I've probably forgotten Edinburgh School of Art within that, so four. We've got a digital ecosystem that is world-renowned and world-class. And with all that goes with that, there is wealth, as well as poverty. There's significant wealth in Edinburgh. There is a highly skilled workforce. Those are the positives. So you bring all those attributes to the table, you should be able to solve anything. Yes, yeah, you're making it sound relatively easy at the moment, man. I'm joking. I'll come back on the negative bits as well, though, because, because we have those attributes. It should be a lot easier, perhaps, than we're making it. And are we doing too much talking at a strategic level? Actually say, uh, rather than practical action, at grassroots, whether it's local communities, local businesses level, that needs to happen. That's where the dime will be shifted, not in a boardroom or the city chambers. Sorry, Cammy, it will be changed. They create the conditions. It's people on the ground that will make the difference and make the physical change to net zero. Thank you. Cammy, a right to reply to various <laughs> points there. I think. So, so I, I think in principle I'd agree with the points that Brady and Matt raised, you know, and particularly the points actually about the decisions the decisions might be taken up here, but how people will change is taken absolutely in communities. We learned that during COVID that the people who have the best solutions to community issues are the people who live in that community. And it's exactly what they did during um, COVID. I suppose to add to the many challenges that Bridie and Matt raised, I'd also add the, the fact that we have a World Heritage Site, you know, and we're a historic city. But that brings us different challenges from other cities as well. And I absolutely agree with Matt's point about the lack of action across the globe, actually. I think Edinburgh and many other cities in the UK, to be fair, are leading in this. We have a pretty bold and ambitious climate strategy to get to 2030 with six bold points, which I'm sure you can read on our website about climate action. Um, and I, I, I think that get on with the attitude needs to be something we do. It's something we did recently, which I think showed that commitment is whilst it was maybe only £100,000, which we then increased to 140000 was the Community Climate Fund, where we put out a bid to see who could come forward with some ideas to, I suppose, to get community groups mobilised about you actually can do something, not change the world, but if you can get 10 grand of us to, from us to start a project in your area that m- might seem minor in the bigger scheme of things, but... The 56, the 56 organisations that apply for it get some money. Then 56 different groups are making an impact on climate in the city. Now, that was hugely oversubscribed, um, and I hope it's something we'll rerun again. I hope it's something we'll go back to the government to say, we need these community solutions to come forward. Do you go 
and that might also need the private sector to come in with the technology and the brains behind that. But I think the thinking and the solutions need to be done by local communities, and that was evidenced by that oversubscription to that 140 grand we raised. We've also set up the Edinburgh Climate Action Network, um, part of a national chain to, to network across the country to see what we can learn from other people. So I think we're trying. We don't have the expertise and we're not pretending we've got it all here. We've recently appointed a new climate strategy manager who who, who will help lead all our, our, our work together. But I think it's also changing technology. So whilst we talk one minute about air source heat pumps and district heating systems, and I, I roll these off my head like I know what I'm talking about, and I absolutely don't. The other day, even one of my colleagues who's a professor in, in this doesn't quite understand how you can get heat from sewers, and none of us do, um, and nor does it sound right. But you know, I think it's a technology advances as well. We are always, as public authorities, trying to make the best use of public money to throw all your money into one area of technology when in two years' time we're not using that and we've shifted. There's always like a bit of chicken and egg for us us as well matt i think i've got about 700 more questions that that we could ask and that we could talk about what we do have to wrap it <laughs> at some point i'm afraid so before we do finish up i'd like to press you all uh sharp short one sentence uh, it could be anything you like and we'll start with cami then matt then bridey i want to know what is your your big vision or the one big change that you want to see uh, to to help edinburgh attain this this ambition of of a just net zero transition. Cami, Matt, and then Bridie to finish. I'll maybe make one sentence. It might slightly have two things in it. I think for me, as a leader of a capital city, it has to be a bit more more power for local authorities to, to act and not to just sit in committee rooms in Parliament and talk about powers that we can act on, which we're very, very limited in. And alongside that, to enable us to act, that has to come with a genuine commitment from the UK and Scottish Government to resource some of that work to make the change happen in communities across our city. And that would be my simple ask, Fraser. Very simple and straightforward, I think. Uh, Matt, next. It's probably quite quite similar to Cammy's, to be fair. Um, I... I would rather that we stop the talking at a boardroom level, actually agree some concrete actions and objectives from a strategic perspective, and those were implemented at a practical local level and a business level as quickly as possible. We started a conversation with 2030, we're six and a half years away, and we're still discussing at a strategic level. Um, what needs to happen on a net zero perspective and not enough action at a practical local level. Brady, the final word. Oh, thank you. <laughs> a community development trust in every part of the city that can harness community ambition, including young people's, um, to create a future that's worth living in and thriving communities around it um, from a sort of well-being point of view, socially, ecologically um, and nature. Um, I could see communities driving that let's invest in them and back them. Fantastic. Well, thank you to you all. Uh, an absolute pleasure to have you along. You have been listening to Local Zero. Thanks to our guests and everyone we've heard from about this episode. And we look forward to hearing about what you think about our guests' perspectives. Uh, lots of food for thought there. If you haven't already, go and find and follow us at Local Zero Pod on Twitter to get involved with discussions over there. And also, if you have any thoughts, feelings, um, hopes and fears, uh, please share them uh, with us uh, via email at localzeropod at gmail.com. A final plea, please, to rate and review the pod. It's been great reaching out to new listeners recently, so thank you to all of those who've shared and done this already. But until next time, thank you to our guests. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Cheers. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Produced by the Spoken Media.